So this new series we're going to be offering is the Dominicans. I think uh, I want to start with just the the poster we used. I'll share screen briefly um, so you can see. I'll mostly have this class in audio. Um, but this is the photo used. This is from Bologna. It's called the Tavola della Mascarella. That's that's in a church now, Santa Maria della Mascarella in in, in Bologna, and. Um, you can kind of see there how Dominic is seated with his brethren. Uh, two neat facts about this. This was done in the 1230s, right around the time of his canonization, um, you know, a dozen or so years after St. Dominic died. It is the earliest image of him and his brothers. So this is the first image, which we still have. It was also done on, um, on, on, a, on a dining room table. Uh, kind of as as the table, as the edge would hang forward, uh, it was kind of at the front of the table on display, and it's a long, long painting with a, many brothers, and um, on a table that Dominic would likely have eaten at. So it's actually a relic. The wood itself is a relic of the saint, a second class as he had touched it. Um, so that's just a little background. If you had seen the poster, that is the image, the earliest one. The second thing I want to do is do a little geography on Google Maps. I'm going to go here for a few minutes and show us all what areas we'll be talking about. Because if I just start naming cities and it's left purely to your imagination, um, it's better to have a visual. So St. Dominic, I give you the two places of his birth. He was born in Calaruega, Spain, which is now uh, the the area of Spain is called Castilla-Leon. A cool little thing I... In this past year, when we had the Feast of St. Dominic, August 8th, I went down to our basement looking for a bottle of red wine. Someone was trying to serve white wine with steak, and I thought, that you can't do that. Um, everyone knows this. So I went down to the basement. I actually found, among like four bottles on this old shelf, I think maybe Father George had picked it up way back. But on the feast day itself, I got a bottle from this exact region, Castileon, just awesome, like, little providential find on a feast day. Um, so we'll talk about this. Again, you could see on the map north of Madrid. So Madrid's dead central Spain, and uh, St. Dominic is from just north. Some other sites, too, um, is that you have Palencia, where he basically went to so-called high school. That's just to the west, as you can see. Um, you also have um, Osma. So Osma, Palencia, Calaruega, all up north and what's right near Burgos. Uh, if you walked, St. Dominic walked all over Europe. That's how he spent a lot of his life. The Dominicans were born in Toulouse, France. So southern France, across the border from Spain. It would take you about 120 hours to walk. So 10 days or so, if you're really hustling. They say Dominic would walk sometimes about 35 miles a day. So... He's called in the earliest constitutions an athlete for Christ, and that wasn't just a metaphor. He, um, he pushed his body, like Paul did in his journeys, uh, very much in, in promoting the gospel. Um, a couple other places, too, of significance we could look at briefly. So the two major universities which the Dominicans will settle at is Paris, and then soon after Paris, the University of Bologna. You can see Bologna in northern Italy. Um, so just to orient us on those things. Another couple things, too. Dominic, before he founded the Dominicans, and they very quickly boomed across Europe in the matter of a year to two years, he spent about 12 years 
um, preaching in the south of France against a heresy called Albigensianism. People wouldn't often travel there first, but a few of these places, just so we see, so there was a big council where he and his bishop, Diego, met uh, the Cistercian abbots, where they first got involved in this work. That was here on the coast in Montpellier. So Montpellier is, again, south coast of France, near Marseille. If you keep going back towards Spain, you have uh, Carcassonne, you have Toulouse. Uh, it's interesting. Dominic loved to preach in Carcassonne when he was by himself for 10 years because uh, he he received the most flack. People didn't like him there, so he wanted to preach there versus uh, just preaching in Toulouse where he was very well-loved, more well-loved, let's say. So that's, I mean, what else is in this area of South France where he spent so much time? We have, you know, just southwest of Toulouse is Lourdes, so we all know Lourdes, France, someone in the area. If you if you go back to, to Montpellier, this is also the Avignon where the Pope was for, you know, almost 100 years, the Avignon Papacy. Just to give you um, some of that uh, orientation on geography. So that's all we're doing, visuals. I'm sorry that uh, uh, we're going to be limiting it to that. Um, I have in this first talk, we have a series ahead of us. This first talk is just on St. Dominic. Um, it will be, um, let me think. I, I, I have a statement, I'll just read this here, that um, quantity over quality. So I'm going to kind of in St. Dominic, I think with our time given, it's good to just kind of get the whole layout. It doesn't mean giving the deepest reflections I'm sorry for that choice. It may not be great quality. We're going for quantity. <laughs> so, ready. Uh, the Dominicans. We're going to look at our founder, St. Dominic. Um, a first quick note to a reminder of Dominicans in Philadelphia, because that's why we're offering this. Dominicans arrived in Philly. We did this in the church history course, but um, the parish history course. Brief overview. 1808, so before St. Patrick's in 1839, 1808, uh, William Harold, at the very beginning of the diocese, an Irish Dominican came. He was the bishop's right-hand man. He was the vicar general. He was actually pastor of the Jesuit parish, uh, Old St. Joseph's, the oldest parish when it shut down for a time. And he also had a fellow Irish Dominican, John A. Ryan. They eventually got into conflict with the American Dominicans once they arrived. They wrote to the Secretary of State, Henry Clay, protesting their rights. Eventually, they ran back to Ireland. Um, that was 1808. 1849, St. Dominic's in the Northeast, which is still a parish, was founded by another Irish Dominican, John Dominic Barrell, B-E-R-R-I-L-L. Um, and then our longest stay, because uh, those were just single Dominicans, the Dominican community moved into Fishtown, Holy Name, which is which is now run by the Redemptorists. We, uh, we had built Fishtown, Holy Name in 1912 and stayed until 1998. So basically, the span of the 20th century. There were also Dominican sisters from New York State in Elkins Park to the north. The Hawthorne Dominican sisters founded... New York City by Nathaniel Hawthorne, the author's daughter, uh, Rose Hawthorne, who is up for her cause for sainthood is coming up. Um, and we Dominicans arrived here presently, July 22nd, Feast of St. Mary Magdalene, um, who's seen as a preacher as well, 2018. 
And it's neat too, St. Patrick's, I've mentioned this before, founding date, 1839, is the first Mass on December 22nd, which is also our anniversary of the birth of the Dominicans, December 22nd of 1216. So we'll get there. But some good connections. The Knights of Columbus Hall right next door to us, next to D'Angelo's, was um, the Santo Domingo, San Domingo Council, St. Dominic Council. Um, So anyway, hints of that um, every religious order uh, involved in diocese and, and helping out and even our own. So let's look and run the list at the founder, St. Dominic. I want to read a brief quotation. I want to start. I just think this is a great kind of vivid scene to start with St. Dominic. And this is from the earliest text, the earliest biography on him. And I will just read this word for word. Um <clears throat> Once when the servant of God, Dominic, was at Rome in the Basilica of St. Peter's, where he was praying fervently in God's sight for the preservation and growth of his order, which, is, which the right hand of God has raised up through him, he suddenly saw the glorious princes, Peter and Paul, coming toward him in a sudden vision brought about by the power of God. Peter, who was the first, seemed to be handing him a staff, and Paul handed him a book, and then they spoke these words in unison, Go and preach, because you have been chosen by God for this work. And then, in a moment of time, he seemed to see in a vision all of his children, meaning the Dominicans, dispersed throughout the world, going two by two, preaching the word of God to the people. It's kind of a great place to begin. Dominic founded the Dominicans, and they spread across Europe like wildfire. Um, But he was stuck in Rome doing a lot of the legislation and groundwork, but he he wasn't only doing that. He also, uh, he, he, he has this vision in the midst of his stress in Rome that Peter and Paul say, go and preach, and he gives us, he gets this consoling vision that his brothers are doing that, and it's, and it's God's work. Um, I, I want to, uh, talk very briefly about some of the sources. I read that from the very first book, the Libellus. So I'm holding this up, L-I-B-E-L-L-U-S. Um, the Libellus is written by Dominic's successor, Jordan of Saxony, Blessed Jordan. And it was written around the time of his canonization, which was July 3rd, 1234. So what we're talking about here is the early 1200s, this whole class. And this was written by Jordan. It's the earliest text. We have some others. I mean, a few things about this text. Um, I want to just say that there were still original members of the original 16 Dominicans. I mean, Dominic's first follower, Peter of Selah, was was there testifying at the canonization. He was still around sharing the things he saw. Um, Peter of Selah, there's a great story of how Dominic encouraged him where he had not as much learning and he didn't have as many books. And Dominic basically, there's this whole scene Peter relates of him saying, I promise I will pray for you twice a day, every single day of my life, now go. <laughs> basically encouraging him, we, we have to hit the road. Um, Peter of Sela was there at the canonization. Three, three more of the originals, uh, John of Navarre and uh, Bertrand of... Of Garigua. Bertrand and John were the ones that actually brought the Dominicans to Bologna. So Paris first, but then Bologna was the second major university. John of Navarre also um, was the one who Dominic didn't want them to carry any money on the way. 
and um, and he John insisted he wanted some money, so Dominic wept and asked him again, and he still wanted money, and he gave him money. So he wasn't he was strict, but not so strict that he wouldn't cater to some of the weaknesses of the brothers. John being the first, um, and Bertrand was there when he he traveled with Dominic to first visit Paris. And they traveled on foot. This is the one of the famous speaking in tongues miracles where Bertrand recounts a couple miracles of this where two times where they're walking with German pilgrims and Dominic prays with Bertrand for the gift of tongues, just like Paul had had in the early church. And all of a sudden they preach in German for four days. These people are feeding them on the trail and they're preaching. And, and the German evaporated after four days when they parted ways before Paris and uh, Dominic basically knew it was very special and told Bertrand, you can't speak about this until I die or else they think we're holier than we actually are. Um, so there, there's, and Bertrand had seen uh, things too. So it's, it's great to know that this book, the Libellus, is the first text of the Dominicans. I'm trying to emphasize its importance and that it was written by Jordan but testified to by, by living friars at the, at the, who were with Dominic from the beginning, even his first follower, Peter Sela who also made the first donation. I mean, it was, they lived in Peter Sela's house when the Dominicans began. He, he joined and donated his house in, in the city of Toulouse in the south of France. Um, I want to just say this briefly, that um, there are four more sources, uh, and this may not interest you, but it may. Four sources of Dominican, sort of the life of Dominic. Um, a little later than the Libellus in the 1230s, you have Peter of Ferrand. He he got more local stories from these regions and added them. This was also for liturgical use, putting certain of these stories and and, and things in, in the liturgy. Uh, fast forward 10 years, 15 years to 1248, a Roman Dominican, Constantine of Orvieto, also had collected more miracle stories of Dominic from Italy and other places. So those are added. It's also when the liturgical propers are added for liturgy of the hours. So when people would pray for the feast of Dominic, the solemnity of Dominic, they would have these prayers written. Around 1250, so we're already um, 30 years after Dominic's death, Gerard de Frechet was, he, he, it's this awesome project. This is kind of our second most important book. The Libellus is the first book, but, but this one's called, we're going to talk about this next class, The Lives of the Brothers the lives of the early brothers. And it, it, they basically put out a call to all the communities over Europe saying, send in stories you remember from any brother, anywhere, crazy or not. So it's this amazing um, uh, oral tradition that which was captured by Gerard of Cherchet. And there was more, some more Dominic stuff. Like, for instance, that's when we have the first story of Dominic meeting Francis of Assisi. Um, and we'll talk about that. The fifth source, too, of, of adding to really early original source material, uh, which is in another 20 years in the 1270s, 12, 1280s, Rodrigo of Serrato actually went to Dominic's hometown in Spain. He went to his birthplace. He went to the villagers, and so he got a lot more family information. So I just mean to say that um, there's this great wave that follows after Dominic, after he dies, of uh, his brother's getting every bit of information they could. Um, when you read the Libellus, I want to emphasize this, though. So the technical title Jordan gave this is The Beginning of the Order of Preachers. It is not a biography of St. Dominic, the life of St. Dominic. 
that the concept of these men was, was Dominic always was a brother among brothers. He always went by the title of brother, Brother Dominic. So there, there, re- there really is emphasized, especially in comparison to monasticism, monks, where you have the abbot whose father. Dominicans were something very new like the Franciscans, where there wasn't a first a biography. This is called The Beginning of the Order of Preachers. That's our very first book. And the other thing to be said about it is that you know, it begins, Jordan writes, I'll, I'll read you just the first sentence, and he says, To the sons of grace and the co-heirs of glory, all the brothers, I, Brother Jordan, their unprofitable servant, I send greetings, and I love this, I pray that they may always have joy in their holy profession. Basically, you professed vows, you joined the Dominicans, and Jordan's just his first prayer is, may this bring you joy, may the, being a Dominican bring you joy. And then, when he goes on to talk about we should write this before people forget, we should write this while we still have time, the very first kind of chapter after the intro is about Diego, the Bishop of Osma. See, Dominic was a diocesan priest originally, and his Bishop Diego was the one that wanted to do this preaching. His Bishop Diego had the idea, he had the initiative. However, we'll talk about this soon, he died. So the beginning of the order of preachers doesn't just begin with a vision, St. Dominic, miracle. It's that there were problems in the church, and this bishop saw this, and he brought some priests with him. And the, so it's kind of a unique beginning to a religious order. It's, um, it's very much kind of from the hierarchy, and, uh, and it doesn't begin with Dominic. That's worth, that's worth saying. But let's begin with Dominic ourselves, okay? Just to kind of get a little bit of his biography. So when we look at... Um, I'd like to look at his parents, Felix of Guzman, and he was a landowner, very rural, Calaruega, Spain, and his wife was very noted to be holy. She's a blessed. Dominic's mother is Blessed Jane, Juana de Aza, A-Z-A, Blessed Jane of Aza, and uh, just was very reputed for holiness. Her, her first son was a diocesan priest who ran a hospice for the poor. Second son, Blessed Manes, became a priest and joined the Dominicans eventually, was very quiet and holy. And then her third son, she was praying um, for a third son. She did a lot of prayers in a local Benedictine monastery, which was up the mountain, very mountainous, dry territory there. And that Benedictine monastery was named after Saint Santo Domingo de Silos. Now, Domingo is just the word for Sunday, literally the day of the week, the Lord's Day. And this saint before Dominic was called Domingo de Silos. And so... His mother was praying to the intercession of the saint, may she conceive a third child, because she was worried she wouldn't be able to have a third child. She did conceive a third child, and it was Dominic. Um, and so she named him after, after that, the saint of that monastery, Domingo de Silos. A couple other fun stories. Let's, let's just run the list and get his childhood down. Um, when, he was, when she was pregnant, Blessed Jane of Aza had, this is where the dog Image, you see a dog with a torch in its mouth. Um, it's a funny dream she had that she would give birth to a black and white dog, not a child. Whoa. <laughs> and, and with a torch in its mouth, it would, it would set the world afire. And it's interpreted to see that, um, that her son, who would dress in black and white, and that was chosen, the white was chosen because of poverty. It was chosen because it was undyed wool. It was cheap. And, um, and so, so it was seen as the earliest sort of vision of what his, uh, 
what his life would be. She also had a vision, too, when he was a boy of the moon. Sometimes you see Dominic in iconography with a moon appearing over his forehead. Um, there's also kind of his godmother at the moment of his baptism saw a star appear. So there's something about light, fire, spreading, shining out. Um, Dominic also would have two nephews. So, so there's a report that his nephews, two of them became Dominicans. Well, I said his older brothers were priests. I'm not trying to say <laughs> disgraceful things. It means it implies he also had sisters. So the records show that it was, uh, he was the baby, but, um, that, I guess that's how medieval records go. They only named the priests in the family in the records. I don't know. So um, when Dominic was of school age, um, it's important to say that he had a diocesan priest uncle who was always very close to him, educating him. It was his mother's brother. His mother was very holy. Her brother was involved. And he paid for Dominic's schooling. He, he did basically 10 years of education in nearby Palencia. He studied the liberal arts for six years, theology for four years, um, was thinking of the priesthood, but was specifically invited to join the cathedral at Osma, um, all, all in this little region, because there was a famine when he was a student. And when there was a famine, he sold his books. So all of his notes, all of his writings, we were sold. We don't have them. And he set up literally a soup kitchen. I mean, he, he, he set up and ran for months on end on his own initiative, this Center for the Poor, and that got people's attention, and students joined him. Um, and so did the bishop see his attention. So Bishop Diego, as I said, called him to Osma. He came there. He was ordained a priest. He was what we call a canon. This may not be common today. You, you'd have canons regular of St. John Cantius in Chicago, for instance. You can go visit there. They're all over social media. Um, canons were basically diocesan priests who live in community around certain larger churches like a cathedral or other large churches. That was pretty common back um, in the 13th century. So Dominic lives this way of life. They live by the rule of St. Augustine, which Diego introduced to try and... This is St. Augustine. He wrote this rule back in his day in the late you know, 300s, early 400s for religious sisters. And so... Basically, he's, he's a diocesan priest living a semi-religious life. Um, Dominic, too, had responsibility. He was, he was sub-prior. He, he began during these years what became a big habit, which was spending a lot of the night in the chapel, um, sometimes weeping. He was a big crier. There's a word for that in Spanish. Uh, you know, like if a person cries a lot, una llorona or llorón is just like... Dominic was a crier, um, but he also, people, there's actually, <laughs> at his canonization, people testifying, there, were, there was this one certain friar that would spy on him a lot, and um, he noticed that he would do all kinds of postures, so he would put out his hands in the shape of the crucifix and hold it for a while, he would lay face first. This developed into what's called the nine ways of prayer. People still sometimes study this and practice this. There's sort of nine postures, genuflecting, you know, striking your, your chest, sort of uh, this way of praying uh, with the body. So there's a beautiful phrase in, in, the, in, the, in the end of this little book, The Libellus, where Jordan says of Dominic, I love this phrase. Um, he said, the day he gave to his neighbor, the night he gave to God. This is a man who worked a lot during the day and prayed a lot during the night and kept vigil and 
which is maybe why he died before he reached the age of 50. <laughs> is he, uh, he, he really worked and he, he pushed himself. Um, another just few things. So, so Dominic is this young diocesan priest in Osma. He's, he's reading more. He's studying John Cashin. John Cashin brought to Europe C-A-S-S-I-N. He brought the Desert Fathers, the monks. So he gets this whole love of monasticism. And John Cashin had gone around to the monks of Egypt and interviewed them. So this was sort of, Dominic was a diocesan with this monastic side, this monastic learning. Um, Here's how everything changes. Dominic was invited with Diego on a emissarial wedding journey to Denmark. If you look at Google Maps, Denmark is a long ways away. Let's go back to Google Maps just for fun. May I, with your permission, just so we look. Here is, it it would take 10 days to walk from his hometown to Toulouse. It would take a lot longer to walk to Rome. Let's zoom out. Denmark is Scandinavia. We're talking way up north. Um, In Dominic's lifetime, there would be houses of Dominicans in Scandinavia, Denmark, and then even further north. So this was a very large journey because the local king, Alphonse VIII, I mean, it doesn't matter, all these details. Alphonse VIII, um, he wanted to marry his son, Ferdinando, to um, a princess from Denmark because this was the thing to do back in the day, and you would get priests and bishops to kind of arrange this for you. Priests are still involved in marriage prep, Life is not so different these days. So he goes with Diego all the way to Denmark. They arrange for this marriage to happen. They come back home. However, it doesn't happen yet. What happens on that first journey, this is the first time Dominic leaves Spain, he realizes that most of the south of France is under a really serious heresy, and that shocks him. And um, we'll talk about heresy in a moment. We'll go into it very briefly. Um but they stay at this inn outside of Toulouse, and um, so they're, they're, they're traveling, and this is the convert. Dominic makes his first convert. The innkeeper is a heretic. We'll describe that in more detail. Dominic stays up all night and talks to the guy and talks him out of it, and he becomes a Catholic by morning. But as successful as that was... It, it leaves him with a lot of deep concerns that there's a whole swath of uh, Europe which is uh, falling under this error. So they, they go on a second wedding journey all the way back to Denmark for the wedding. And because they didn't have email, the princess they sought had died in the meantime. Oh, yeah. So his bishop Diego says, all right, we just traveled months on foot or on horseback then to Denmark. So... They said, let's make a pilgrimage out of it. On the way back, they stop in Rome. And they stop in Rome, and his bishop, Diego, is very fervent in saying, let's consider, um, let's consider uh, having a preaching mission to help out the south of France, which is, which is suffering under these... Uh, he, he tries to resign his, his, his bishop's status, his episcopacy. The pope refuses him that. But while the Pope doesn't let him resign, he goes and meets a Cistercian monk. And the Cistercian monks, these are the Reformed Benedictines. They're the ones in the south of France. There are 12 different abbots who are all trying to preach and go against this. And Diego, basically, he takes the robes, the habit of the Cistercians, and he becomes one. And he and Dominic stop in the south of France in Montpellier. 
And they have this meeting with the Cistercians and they realize, all right, I'm still the bishop. I have to go back to Spain, but we're going to stay sometime. They actually end up staying two years. And they literally preach town to town on foot. We're talking not about in churches. We're talking about public disputes in the square. I mean, the, the solemn disputation at Montpellier, which I think they, 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 they lost, but they still converted about 150 people. There were many of these disputes. Um, these were these, these these would last two weeks in public. Um, so let's let's touch briefly in heresy, may we? I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but sometimes we think of heresy like, as what's that? Like, Say it again. It sounds a lot like our disputes. <laughs> Only two weeks. So Q and A's at the end, buddy boy. Okay. Oh, <laughs> so I'll say this: um, when we have like this notion of heresy. I think a lot of times we think sometimes the wrong idea will crop up and it just kind of takes root. There is, however, this, there, there, there's passing on culturally. I mean, this heresy of Albigensianism, what they call Cathars, a few basic things. Um, there's sort of a belief that there are some of us who are totally perfect um, and, 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 and these are like they're priests of sorts and they're very poor and they're very disciplined and others can kind of live however they want, but you receive an extra sacrament, not one of the seven, but a, an eighth sacrament at the end of your death called the consolamentum, which just means live however you want, get this extra sacrament and go happily to heaven. Um, there's a belief in kind of two gods, you know, good and bad God. But the, the, key, the dangerous thing is this, really. The dangerous thing is uh, Albigensians really believed that, that though God was holy, the church was not. There's this real deep suspicion of the church is so unholy and so corrupt that, uh, we, that God has abandoned it. And that's, that's heresy. Um, and that's actually something I, I know people presently who might almost think that. So I'm saying we almost think sometimes heresy, it, it could go very far left, it could go very far right. Um, so it's, it's just something worth mentioning. The other thing, too, is that um, when it comes to this sort of uh, – there, they're also against – they were against the order of the liturgy. This liturgy we're praying in mass doesn't seem directly from Christ or the apostles. There's undermining the liturgy. Like I said, th- this came from the Paulicians. This, this came from early church, and this is a people who have their own rituals, their own customs. This is an ethnic group, okay? They had, they had been kicked out they, in, in, and moved towards Turkey. They were in Byzantium. They fought wars against the Byzantine Empire in like the 8, 9, 10 hundreds, and then they spread across Italy, the Valdensians, the Bogomils. They go by different names. This isn't just wrong ideas sometimes pop up. This is actually an, uh, an ethnic group um, that has traveled and been very strange and sometimes been very successful. Uh, they take stories and reverse them like, in, like Adam and Eve, the snake, instead of being the tempter, the snake is actually a savior. I mean, very odd stuff. Look into it later. But it, it goes to show that this is something that has endured since the early church. So I don't want this idea that there was a wrong idea once and Dominic stomped it out. Um, wrong ideas endure, and the church has to, in every age, sort of face these. Um, I want to just say this about a few of those early years. So for the, for the early disputes, a couple things. Uh, Dominic started to use the title 
brother Dominic. So already he's thinking of himself in something different than just... They, they, they wanted to dress poor and simple, so the Cistercians sent home their horses, they sent home their carriages, their servants. So there was this real poverty emphasis of saying, if we're going to be respected and heard, we have to come with just the gospel. Um, there were some complaints, too, that the, 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 all these public disputes, there, were, there was a mix. There were priest judges, but lay judges of God, you know, town councils meeting, and they were inconclusive. There are miracles of the fire, three different miracles, one in private, one in public, um, which Jordan writes about, which Dominic had thrown his writings, his book of theology, into the fire, and it leapt out of the fire. And people saw it physically leap out of the fire, and, uh, but then still people can doubt. So it didn't mean they won the debate. It just mean that people had noticed uh, this. Um, I'll say just a couple things to kind of wrap up this chapter. Um, after all of these public disputes for two years going around on foot, um, Dominic did something original. He founded a convent of women. He founded nuns first. They weren't officially Dominicans, but actually Diego, his bishop, founded them. A little town called Pruie, P-R-O-U-I-L-L-E. And um, this was because of two things. He knew that uh, women are sometimes the best educators of a new generation. It's not just, you know, the nuns of St. Patrick's in the past or the sisters or women, majority women teaching in grade schools. There's something about women's special ability to teach children from an early age, and Dominic knew that, and Diego knew that. There's a story about how Dominic was very tired one day sitting on this hill above Pruy, and he, they had had this idea, and they didn't know where. And he saw this sort of uh, vision of light. It was, like a, it, was like, <laughs> it was like a ball of fire, for lack of a better term, sorry. And it was actually kind of in the evening. It wasn't the sun, and it descended down as he's in this valley at sunset in the south of France, it descends upon this little old farm, this house. And um, providentially, that kind of became the place where their very first established convent was for nuns in Pruy. To this day, Dominican nuns are still there, which is amazing. It's, it's our first foundation, and it's, uh, it's remained. So that was in the year 1207. In that same year, 1207, this is when Bishop Diego goes back to Spain. Why? To fundraise. For who? This convent of nuns. Um, he stops on the way in another town called Pamier. They say he has his biggest success yet. He converts the entire town back to orthodoxy. It was tough. There, there's a story Jordan gives about a knight explaining to one of the priests why it was tough is because... Um, things were so intermingled between heretic and orthodox within cousins, relatives, aunts, uncles, that that was kind of the reason why it endured is nobody wanted to call anybody out. Nobody wanted to separate and be tough because things were so intermixed. Um, Diego has his largest success in Pamier. He converts the whole town. He goes to Spain and he dies three weeks later. So it's his last mission. He dies. Uh, in short time, the Cistercians leave because he was the leader. And for the next 10 years, essentially, the only person who carries on this preaching mission is Domingo de Guzman, is Dominic. Um, he did have some help. William of Claret, a uh, Frenchman, was 
commonly living with him, as well as another uh, Dominic from Spain. Um, what happened in these 10 years where Dominic's alone and things seem to have failed? Um, he's preaching town to town. Uh, he is... Uh, he 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 grows very close to the bishop folk of Toulouse, who and 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 he he's assigned a parish priest at Fanjo, so he's working as a parish priest. He becomes a military chaplain for the time, not because he's triumphalistic, but uh, Pope Innocent calls a crusade. So uh, there is in this day preaching uh, uh, and and warfare, and you can go back and hear all of our theorizing in the. Uh, classes I gave on the Crusades, but this was uh, happening. And Dominic was never on the battlefield, but he would minister to soldiers. He would minister to Simon de Montfort, who was from the north of France. Simon de Montfort came, and not Louis de Montfort, key distinction. Louis de Montfort is total devotion, consecration to Mary. Simon de Montfort, um, who who became a bit bloody, um, Dominic was... He uh, was spiritual director to his two daughters. He had done baptisms and weddings for the family. So you have this mix of Dominic being military chaplain, parish priest, traveling town to town, um, various accounts where he was almost martyred, um, various accounts, too, where he performed real miracles. I want to run through a fun list of early miracles. May I do this as a commercial break? Just, I mean, this is the Middle Ages. We have to talk about miracles. He was known for doing a lot of exorcisms. Dominic cast out a lot of evil. Uh, there are stories of that. One time outside of Toulouse, the river is called the Ariège River, and he, he only carried two sets of books, and he had Dominicans actually only carry two sets of books originally. He encouraged his brothers to carry the letters of St. Paul and the Gospel of Matthew, the essentials. And one time in crossing a stream, lifting up, hiking up his, his robes, his habit, his books fell into the stream, and they were lost. And it, it's not so – miracles are not things appear out of thin air. It's just that a fisherman uh, hooked them soon after and recovered his books. Okay. Um, but like a very famous early story of Dominic. He offered himself multiple times, almost like the redemptors would, to be sold into slavery to free someone else. But there were three times where money came in at the last moment. He was very willing um, there was a time when he was praying outside of a church and there was a, there was a boat of pilgrims going to Santiago, the big St. James pilgrimage of Compostela, and they were submerged and he came out and by his prayers and intercession, they basically were guided safely to shore. Um, there are, I mean, there, there, there are later fun stories. I mean, some of these things get wild. I mean, some of these things, you know. Brother Bertrand said one time they were walking in a downpour and he made the sign of the cross and almost like magic umbrella miracle. They didn't get wet. I mean, but they were also serious about these things. So the power of God is much greater in the Eucharist than it is in like preventing rain. That's, that doesn't matter. The Eucharist does. Um, so I, uh, just a few miracles at the time. Um, what, how do, what about Dominic's personality that got him through this? Uh, Jordan gives this big tribute. He actually says, greater than any of the miracles was this man's personality. Um, it's tough to say, like, okay, so here he is in the middle of his life. Um, Dominic will not live to 50. Now, I'm, I'm spending so much time here instead of, like, when are the Dominicans coming in? Are you going to talk about them? 
when Dominic finally founds the Order of Preachers, Friars Preachers, he only lives for four and a half years. So if you look at a man who's almost 50, the vast majority of his life was spent in this sort of preaching. He founds an order of preachers at the very end of his short life. He didn't know that. Um, so it is worth spending time in the middle. And it's even worth considering his personality because here it was shaped, here it was formed. Um, a couple of things Jordan writes about Dominic. This is just kind of fun. Um, he had a good singing voice. Okay, we don't always get these personal details of saints. He loved to sing the Ave Mari Stella. Ave Mari Stella Dei Mater Alma. He loved to sing um, the Veni, Veni Sancti Spiritu, um, or Veni Creator Spiritu to the Holy Spirit. Um, he was described as humble. Someone asked in the chat, how was he almost martyred? I mean, he was cornered and threatened and he, he, he was humble. He basically said in many times, he goes, I'm, I'm, I'm not worthy of being a martyr. And, um, he kind of taunted them and he gave some talk back. He could push back. Um, but he was humble. I mean, he refused being, being Bishop of, of the town of Consaran. I mean, he, he, he walked barefoot. This was always his penance. He walked barefoot uh, through the Alps. He walked barefoot all around the south of France. He Even one time, there's a great early story where, to show his poverty, he convinced this local bishop to, to walk to this town. They were going to preach together barefoot. And, and then they got lost in the woods because their guide was a Cathar, a heretic, and they get lost barefoot. And this bishop's like, who is this guy? I hate him. And... Um, and then eventually, though they get lost and don't make it to the town, they do convert their guide, the heretic. So God's strange providential ways. Um, Dominic was also, he was described by people very carefully as saying um, that when he considered something for a while and made a decision, he never changed his decision. It's actually a great quality. He, he, he stuck to every decision. He loved wine. There are multiple wine stories about visiting the sisters late at night, at midnight, and they welcome him. And he says, sisters, I know you're in bed, but go to the cellar. Let's visit, you know. And they, uh, there are multiple wine stories. Um, there is, um, he was a storyteller. I mean, Dominic's, his, his preaching wasn't just simply the Gospels and theology. His preaching... Uh, was was he said they said for every virtue every vice every situation he just had a whole collection of stories in his mind. Um, he was a redhead that may surprise you. <laughs> there's there's mean things said about redheads, but um, but you'll stop now now that you know Saint Dominic our founder is one. And I I would say this too. I mean Dominic in some ways is an introvert. I mean I I think of uh, my grandfather. Jack Fisher, my grandfather, in his high school yearbook, it's really funny, he, uh, they wrote, because my grandfather's quiet, they wrote this phrase, silence could not hide his strength, and he loves that, he's like, that's right, I was quiet but strong, you know, and th th there's something about that, I mean, when I think of St. Dominic, I think of, quiet doesn't mean there's, you're not friendly, you're not motivated, you're not hardworking, I think of, you know, St. Joseph, I think of dear friends, you know, personality types, Dan Brindle, Jonathan Tellis, my uncle Tom. I think of people who, these people are not class clowns, all right? I, I am not like St. Dominic in this way. They don't, you know, they're, they're, they're a little more reserved, organized, polite. 
but but there, there's there's something to be said for the quiet saints and the quiet people around us. So Saint Saint Dominic is one of these. Um, but I would say this too, a brother, because he never wanted to be solo. You know, um, he he was still collaborating with every diocesan person when he's preaching. Saint Dominic really is. Um, an incredible brother, not only to his own brothers, even the diocesan clergy. There are miracle stories where uh, people don't even know how this happened, where he would, he would cast out evil. You know, there was this diocesan priest who was, was struggling with purity and couldn't keep his life together in terms of sexuality. And Dominic just said he would pray for him, he would be his intercessor, and the man never struggled for the rest of his days. There was just something about a brother to all, and that seems cliché, but in this case, um, if you look close at his biography, he was a brother to all. St. Dominic's last working mission was not just Dominicans only, me and my boys, nobody else. He was put by the Pope with a collaborative effort with other religious orders. So how he started this, diocesan, Cistercian, whatever, even his last mission was, was mixed company, preaching together. There's something very serious in the word brother. Um, so what was Dominic's, uh, who was his first Dominican brother? Let's go back to the narrative. Um, Peter Sela was the first one in Toulouse, Peter Sela, and then there was a brother, Thomas, who was known as very eloquent, very good preacher. The three of them uh, gathered in Toulouse because he was called by the bishop there. He was collaborating with him. And then as they start to form a house, uh, Dominic goes with his bishop to Lateran, Four, like we had Vatican II, Vatican, you know, big ecumenical council in Rome at the Lateran Basilica. At Lateran Four, this is where the lives of the brethren say that he met Francis of Assisi. Uh, this is where they're both going to get approval for their new orders together. And I'll read that briefly. This is really beautiful from the lives of the brethren where... Uh, I'll, I'll just read this word for word as the text says. In There was a Franciscan, uh, wait, I'll just read this. In the summer of 1215, this, they heard this from a Franciscan. The summer of 1215, St. Francis and a small group of friars were in Rome seeking approval for the rule. One night while Francis was praying, he saw our Lord had prepared to send chastisements upon the world, punishments. The Virgin Mary made an effort to appease him, hold him back, asking for mercy and asking for forgiveness. And this is a dream of St. Francis. She presented, she presented to God two men who would labor for the conversion of the world, would return countless number of lost sheep to the fold. Francis recognized himself as one of those apostles presented to God, but he didn't recognize the other. Awaking, the following day, St. Francis was in church. And an unknown man suddenly came up to him and embraced him. Francis recognized him as the man from his vision. It was Dominic, who had also received a similar vision. And upon seeing St. Francis, he greeted him and said to Francis, You are my brother, my companion. We will work together supporting one another toward the same end, and no one will prevail against us. I think that's incredibly powerful, that Mary was interceding for Franciscans and Dominicans, and Francis had seen in a dream uh, Dominic and then met him the next day in Rome for their first encounter. Um, other texts will say, now that was from the 1250s, 
If you want to go to the 1230s, real close to Dominic's death, it would be at the end of his life, the very last end of his life when they're in Rome. We know that Dominic and Francis were in Rome right before Dominic's death in 1221. That's another time uh, they possibly met. So um, what happens at this big church council? Well, look up Lateran four, all kinds of things with liturgy, discipline. I mean, a lot goes on. But I will say this with the new orders. Pope Innocent III is one of the greatest of popes. Um, Innocent III basically said to, to both men, you, you, you need to, we have too many religious orders springing up this and that. Find an established rule, an established way of religious life, and also find a bishop to sponsor you. So Dominic comes back and has to find a bishop uh, to sponsor him. He, he has his own bishop in Toulouse. They give him the Church of Saint-Romain. They actually gave two smaller churches to in the suburbs. The Church of Saint-Romain becomes the first Dominican church. They're not Dominicans yet. They're not called the Order of Preachers. Um, when these men are living together, doing the preaching, it is December 22nd of 1216. The brothers have gathered. There are about 16 by now, not just three, but 16 brothers. Pope Innocent has died. He is replaced by Pope Honorius III. And finally, the writing comes, the papal bull, saying that they are approved. They're approved still at a diocesan level. They are local canons of the Church of San Romain. So we're not the order of preachers, but we do say this is the birth of this community, that are the Dominicans. This is our birthday, December 22nd, 1216. Um, in the following months, right after that December 22nd bull, you then get this language in, in January 21st is another letter, February 7th, where February 7th, you know, they use the word, which now we're known as Ordo Predicatorum, after our name, O.P., is the Order of Preachers. Um, then we talk about, you know, uh, Dominic is named later on, um, he, he's, we'll go into this later, but right now we're, we're confirmed as friars, preachers, we're brothers, preachers, and we're the order of preachers, and this is new for the church. So what we're going to talk about in the Dominican chapter, so we, we just talked about the church meeting, church council. We have the Dominican, first Dominican meeting. Uh, we kind of spell out what exactly are we. So they get approval, they're official, and fast forward from December to August. So that is eight mere months and Dominic announces to his brothers that they're all being sent out and separated. Some will stay in Toulouse, three will stay there, four are sent to Spain, a small group is sent to Paris, and he will go to Rome. This is called the dispersal of the brethren. Um, it happens on the Feast of the Assumption, August 15th, and it's risky. This is a brand new community, and he sends them out and scatters them abroad. Uh, they say this is probably the most inspired moment of St. Dominic's life because um, fast forward, you know, the, 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 the three and then five friars he sent to Paris. I mean, he, he visits soon after and there are 30. I mean, we, we boom exponentially. I mean, in, in the course of four and a half years, they will not have one house. They will have 30 houses across Europe. So, there was great growth. I mean, Dominic's sermon to them at the time, there was a sermon to the people saying, trying to explain the Crusades and a sermon to the people saying that um, 
that that there's there's just if we don't follow God's ways, that just like earthly punishment, earthly turmoil happens. He's basically giving an explanation for this. But then he turns and he gives a sermon about Christ had scattered grain. And he says, if grain is stored, it rots. I mean, what it, it's just kind of a punch in the face sermon. Stored grain rots. So go. And they do go forth. Um, and let's talk about, so I'm just going to read through a timeline of the next four and a half years because Dominic only was a Dominican officially for four and a half years before he died. And you can see why he died. He never stopped. Here we go. So um, two weeks after he disperses the brothers to universities, right? He has that learning in mind to other places, uh, Spain to get more recruits, more vocations. That was Diego's idea. Two weeks after Toulouse goes into a new warfare, new revolt. Um, The reason why this crusade had happened, just side comment, there was a Cistercian abbot who was assassinated, who was killed. He was the Pope's representative. His name was Peter Castelnau. And this happened in uh, 1207. And so there was violence to provoke all of this. Uh, The Pope's representative was murdered, and this caused the church to respond in different ways, and for better or for worse. Um, So what happens after the dispersal of the brethren? Uh, The great military supporter, Simon de Montfort, he dies nine months later. Um, so this crusade is kind of devolving some. Um, Dominic grows a beard. <laughs> Why do I say that? He grows a beard because the only priests allowed to grow a beard were those going to go on mission. He has in mind, he wants to go to uh, Muslim and Mongol territories to the east and he wants to be a missionary to the East to expand even further. He sent his men to European centers. He wants to go further. He never gets his dream. And there's a great lesson for sanctity there. You don't get your dream always when you're being made holy. Um, but he grew a beard and then showed up at the chapter to basically try to resign and say, I'm stepping down as head of the order, master of the order. And they wouldn't let him. Um, so the friars disperse. They found the first community in Spain in Segovia. They go to Paris and have a lot of friction. We'll talk about this next week with the diocesan academics. Um, I'll read you the chronology if you... Here we go. So um, Dominic is in Rome this whole time. He's getting letters to promote them to bishops. He's sending out letters saying to bishops, we're this new order of friars preachers. We're trying to bring healing to the church. The Pope is writing these letters for him on his behalf. And he's also in a key way saying, and we won't take any of your diocesan money because finances were this question. So we, we beg, we survive on our own. Um, after spending about a year in Rome, Getting the order established legislatively, Dominic goes on foot. In 1218, he travels from Rome and he visits the very new community at Bologna. Paris is the major university, Bologna second. It's a big law school, the law school of Europe. He sees the new community there, and especially it's thriving. Uh, they have you know, five of the largest professors that all just joined. When Dominic was in Rome during that year's stay, Um, there was a great convert that he made in a canon law professor called Blessed Reginald of Orléans, France. Reginald was traveling through Rome on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. He was a professor at Paris. 
And he got gravely ill and he talked to Dominic and he wanted to join the order and he wanted to, but he couldn't get better. And this was visually seen. This is the first apparition of Mary in the order's history that Mary was seen by Dominic and Reginald and others to visibly appear and Mary visibly anointed Reginald in his eyes, his nose, and his all over his body. Mary anointed him and healed him. And she also revealed that she wanted us to wear a scapular. The reason why Dominicans wear this front piece, the scapular, the long up and down, is because in this vision, Mary also revealed that to Reginald of Orléans. And Dominic adopted it. He started to wear a scapular then and there. So once Reginald recovered, and that was Dominic's favorite story to tell. He told that to everybody about how the Blessed Mother appeared and, and anointed what was really now one of his best friends. Um, Reginald completes his Holy Land pilgrimage, goes back to Bologna, and the place booms. I mean, he attracts a lot of academics. He's one of the key, he's one of the key Dominicans. We'll talk about the whole gang next week of the early guys. Um, so Dominic, after Rome, he goes to Bologna. He sees Reginald. He sends him on to Paris. He goes to Spain because there, he, there, were, there were nuns. So you had the nuns in France. Now there's a second community in Madrid. Uh, there were houses of friars in Guadalajara. Most of the friars had left. So by his prayers, he stays and intercedes and intercedes, and many of them return. He then travels from Spain back to Toulouse, France, to visit the original foundation. Then in 1219, he travels across the Alps. We talked about the story of speaking tongues in German to Paris. At Paris, he establishes our main house there, the seminary Saint-Jacques. There's 30 friars already. After Paris, he travels across the Alps barefoot again to Bologna. Then after he meets Diana, Diana will become this, this young, you know, feisty Italian girl who, who also, he, he, the last thing he'll do in life is form a convent of nuns in Bologna. Um, then he travels to Viterbo. He meets the Pope. The Pope wants to send him on this joint mission with all these other friars from other orders um, he is getting set up. However, he goes to Rome and the Pope says, I want you to found a third convent of sisters, not just France and Madrid, but in Rome, San Sisto. He goes and founds them in San Sisto. Um, he founds friars there too. Um, I'll tell a few fun stories there. Uh, while Dominic's in Rome, there's this great thing about the appearance of angels. I let, it, it sounds far-fetched. Oh, angels appeared, Middle Ages, storytelling. Well, think of the original description. Um, it says in Jordan that they had, Brother James, who was their procurator, they had no food for the friars that day in Rome, very little. And Dominic just said, like Christ, what you have, whatever you have in the basket, break and distribute to the youngest first. The youngest friars eat first, then up the table they sit in order. And as they're doing so, Dominic is simply praying. And it's not like angels fly in. There's no description of wings. It's all very human. But two people they did not know walk in with satchels of bread kind of in their factory, and they distribute bread they, the medieval said it was really amazing, the bread, <laughs> and they, it was better than the stuff they begged for. And they said that both of these men, their faces looked very, very similar, almost as if they were twins. And this happened twice. So it, It's a good account of a medieval miracle. It's not always cartoonish. It's actually quite uh, accurate and real. Um, 
and uh, Dominic also during this time he he had healings. Uh, there was that same brother James who couldn't get enough bread. He he was very sick, and Dominic this this is very medieval. Whoa, now like Elijah the prophet. There was a young boy who was sick, and he laid face to face, arm to arm, hand to hand, leg to leg, and to kind of share his spirit and hold back the dying spirit so it doesn't escape the body. Dominic does that to one of his own brothers and saves his life. And he's like <laughs> laying on this guy, praying and praying and praying, and then he heals. So welcome to the Middle Ages. This is this series. Um, he, there's an architect who is working on their crypt church. They're building this convent for nuns, San Sisto. And the architect, the crypt partially collapses and kills the man. And by his intercession, Dominic raises the man from the dead. So there's, there's sober accounts of people who were there for this stuff. Um, there was a real holiness in his preaching, but also many times for miracles. Um, after this stay in Rome with the sisters, Dominic goes on the preaching mission. He's called on his preaching mission by the Pope all over northern Italy, Lombardy. He's preaching all over Lombardy, the Waldensians. They're, Waldensians are like the Cathars we talked about in South France, heretics, but more evangelical, more wild, charismatic, dare we say. Add the Holy Spirit to your heresy. I mean, just, I mean, whoa. So Dominic's doing this, but on the way... The new letter names him the Master of the Order. So being called the Master of the Order, the Dominicans have in the summer... No, this is April, actually. In April... I'm sorry, no, no, no. May of 1220. Let's talk about May of 1220. We have this first chapter, the first gathering of Dominicans, officially. I want to say two things. The first is... um, And I'd already told you... You know, this is just preliminary. Dominic tried to resign. He tried to step down. They wouldn't let him. Mother Teresa tried the same thing. Every founder tries the same thing. Um, what they did in this thing is, is, is that they wrote the Dominican, the primitive constitutions. They wrote our rule of, not our rule, but our, our constitutions. And when, when we Dominicans take vows, we take vows to our way of life. We put our hands on the priest's hands. We kneel before him on the book of constitutions. So, this is his original work, and it does two things. First, in the Constitutions, we borrowed a lot from the Norbertines. The Norbertines, the Order of Premontre, their whole sort of liturgy, their liturgical style, liturgical hours, as well as their discipline with diet, what to eat, when to go out, we adapted that from them. The second part was sort of how the, 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 our Dominicans were uniquely governed. There are English studies, and I won't go into every detail, but it is very true that this Dominican chapter in May of 1220 probably is the earliest and most clear influence of representative republics such as the United States of America. So this way of governance is brand new, and it had a huge impact. I I compare Dominic sometimes to James Madison. James Madison, of all the founding fathers, didn't have a huge personality, didn't get much attention, the guy wrote the Constitution single-handedly almost. So there's something about, like, setting up this way of life. I want to describe this in a way. So what are, what are the brand-new things? Delegates? The fact that we elect people and send them as elected representatives or delegates was not in, in government in, in Europe at that time. That was, that, was, that was never in the church in the same way. So elected delegates and also a body that when they meet, like when a religious order was going to meet in a chapter— that has legislative power, meaning if they make rules as a group, it flies. So different from monks. See, what we're getting at here is something revolutionary, that the Dominicans were the first ones to really sit down, Dominic was, and say, what are we actually doing legally and law and structurally? 
before the Mendicant orders, and especially Dominicans, everybody belonged to either a diocese and their bishop or a monastery and the abbot. You belonged to a church, a place, a cathedral, or they'd send you out, or you belonged to a monastery and your abbot. That's how the Dominicans began in that December. What this is now is a religious order. This whole concept of religious order is common these days. Oh, you got Dominicans, Franciscans, Augustinians, Benedictines. The concept of an order where there's one head who's at a mother church, but their provinces divided up and their own gov- their own rules. Frankly, it began in May of 1220 with the Dominican first chapter in Bologna. So this whole structure of the modern religious order... I'm not bragging, but it's from the Dominicans. They're the ones who put put, put form to it. They carved the sculpture for what it was. Um, and Dominic did, really. That's really probably his biggest legacy for the church. Um, so he comes from this chapter. He goes more preaching uh, on and on. Um, what happens is Dominic returns to Rome um, he founds our mother house. This, this, we're getting into the last year of his life. 1221, the last eight months, he comes to Rome. Another miracle, a cardinal's nephew falls off a horse right outside of the nun's convent, San Sisto, raises him from the dead in public, a very public miracle. He meets Francis of Assisi here, but our, our main mother church now, it's gorgeous. It, it used to belong to the Pope, Honorius III, his family. It's called Santa Sabina. This was the the second church we have, and it's still our mother church. It's from the 5th century, from the 400s. It's way back. And that's where the master of the order presently lives. That's where Thomas Aquinas taught. That's where you can go. So our mother church is given to us in his last few months, and they all move in there right after Easter. Um, he goes up to Bologna and founds his fourth set of nuns with Diana. Um, Dominic has been sick for about two years now, and he gets very sick, and um, he has a fever on August 1st. So they take him from Bologna up to the mountains to a Benedictine little monastery, a little place called Monte Mario. And the, the, the Benedictine, because they know he's a saint, says if he dies here, he stays here. I mean, he basically says, like, we're keeping him. It's our property. So they went up there to get cool air, and he's literally the last day of his life. He'll die August 6th. The last day of his life in the heat, they march him down the entire mountain through the entire city on a stretcher to bring him back to the Church of St. Nicholas, where the Dominicans are in Bologna. And he has his last conference. He calls together 12 of his closest kind of followers in Bologna. He gives them um, a final farewell. Um, he first goes to confession. It's a good thing to do. Um, he also confesses publicly to them some things. It's really funny. This, this, this may come off totally wrong, but he said it. He does say to, to, uh, to beware of spending too much time. He, he confesses, maybe I spent too much time with young women. He says, because I, he says, I preferred conversations with younger women than being talked at by older ones. <laughs> it's exact in the Latin. <laughs> it's like, you can't make this stuff up. It's amazing. I'm not being sexist. I'm sorry he said it. It's in Latin. Um, it's, uh, but then he felt bad for saying that. Should I have said this? Um, and then he gives us, for, I'll, I'll read, I'll read a, a few quick sentences from his, uh, from his farewell. So he gathers these 12. Um, And then he says this. 
Um, Behold, he said, up to this hour, and then it, he, he goes on and on, and then he says, my very dear brothers, this is what I leave you as a possession. He, he preached for a long time, but this is the essence. I leave you, this is a possession, to be held by right of inheritance. I leave this to you, my children. And this is a simple reminder. Have charity, preserve humility, and always possess voluntary poverty. And then they prayed the office of the dead, and he sang the Psalms. And right when it says, into your hands, I commend my spirit in the Psalm, he says that, and he, and he dies um, on August 6th of 1221. Um, at that time, I had said there were 30, 30 priories, um, 30 houses. His funeral is large. I mean, the Pope is a personal friend. The Cardinal who had received him in Rome all this time and took him under his wing, Cardinal Ugolino, he had by this time become Pope Gregory the Ninth. And so when your dear friend becomes Pope, he's going to come and preside at your funeral. Uh, the homily, we don't know who the homilist is. It said they preached about contempt for the world and love of heaven. Um, and then there were many miracles. I want to read this. Um, this is a, this is of interest, okay? Because this is it's it's going to kind of be like a thunderclap. This is the end. I'll, I'll end with a few kind of comments for next time. But this is the paragraph. In the midst, people came to 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 the funeral and felt cured by by touching his tomb, touching his burial place. And they 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 there was all this hubbub about miracles. But in the midst of all of this, writes Jordan. Scarcely one friar came to give thanks for this divine generosity. Indeed, even some of the friars insisted that the miracles should be kept quiet for fear of seeking gain, economic gain, out of piety. But in allowing this false notion of holiness to sway their judgment, they neglected the welfare of the church, the people of the church, and they buried the glory of God underground. <laughs> We're, we're going to get to next class. What 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 did the first friars do for the canonization? How did they? But um, already from Dominic's death, these were brothers who worked, who preached, who did this. Um, they were struggling towards even after just a year or two of some guys leaving the order. That was already a thing he was working against. But there's something to be said about brothers don't always treat each other well, and that happened from the funeral. People are getting miracles, and the brothers are like, "Keep it quiet." go over there, you know, and they're trying to just uh, tone things down and, and not let this get out of hand. And they, they will later be, I'll give you the, the teaser here, they will later get the Pope calling them 12 years later and saying, are you going to petition to get him canonized? Because I'm his good friend and you should, and this is ridiculous. So they, the Pope actually uh, told us to get on it. So we'll talk about that in full, but that, that is how Dominic ended his life hard worker. Um, I, I think there's something beautiful about he preached his whole life and yet none of that's recorded because he wasn't a bishop where people are recording his sermons. Um, he was an itinerant preacher. He moved town to town barefoot, um, put on shoes because he was a priest to go and say mass. Miracles, yes. Um, he was caught at dinner one night, levitating, he was heard weeping in the chapel. He had, 
healed and gotten great graces and was an exorcist. But um, it's interesting to see, I call him an introvert, but sometimes, however, it's just, there are only a few people so extroverted that in history, the grand scheme of history, they stand, I mean, I think the comparison to Francis of Assisi, Francis of Assisi is one of the largest personalities in, in Western civilization, you know. And people expect St. Benedict to be the same. St. Dominic, it's like, guys, I mean, you know. So there's, there's something, too, about history leaves a lot buried. And, um, and that's, uh, that's okay. We will see in heaven the full glory and details of all of our lives, not just canonized saints. I want to say three ending statements. Um, a, a simple thing, too, is that, is that Dominic, there's a famous phrase Jordan leaves with, and he says that Dominic was... Uh, full of charity, his charity extended to all the world. And it says, and because he loved all, he was loved by all. Basic, but that's this key phrase, like we said, this key phrase of Jordan, the night he gave to his neighbor, the, I'm sorry, the day he gave to his neighbor, the night he gave to God. And because he loved all, he was loved by all. Um, and there, and that, that's, that's true about Dominic, who I emphasize was a real brother. I mean, even in those 10 years where he's alone, He's spending Lent at the homes of heretic nobles to basically, like, he's spending all of Lent in their house. Um, Talk about dining with the sinners and tax collectors and trying to kind of not only instruct but live by example. Um, And at the same time, he's he's, uh, doing conversions. Um, I want to say two more things as well. Two absences we have. We don't have any of his homilies because, again, this is all oral. There is a letter to the nuns in Madrid, and there are also a few small letters to converts. So they're brief. They're not extremely profound. Um, Dominicans always like to say that, thank God, we don't have any of his homilies. Okay, we're the order of preachers. You wouldn't want the homilies of your founder. And the simple phrase is that we might be too bound to them. We would always have to imitate Dominic's exact way. I don't know if that argument's right or not. I'm just saying that it's said. Um, The last thing I'll say is that what about the rosary? There is, um, the rosary will come up, but in the earliest five texts I had named, um, the rosary was promoted by the Dominicans, and the rosary was really from the laity. I mean, it's not always a vision of a saint. The people of God can be inspired to change the whole church. And the rosary is the perfect example of that. There are later, and I'll give you a timeline, there are later paintings of Dominic receiving the rosary in vision um, hundreds of years later. But it's, it's important to say that very Marian base to the Dominicans. I mean, Dominic saw her anoint his friend Reginald. There's another story of Dominic going around at night and um, the brothers are all sleeping in a common dormitory, and one of them had taken off his habit, had taken off his robes, which they still slept in every night, even in the heat of Italian summer. And Mary had come around blessing with holy water, all the friars, but she skipped that one. And Dominic approaches her and says, um, Blessed Mother, why did you skip that friar? She says, because he took off the holy habit. So he told him the next day, hey, you know, he's stripped down, it's hot. And so he, he corrected the brother, and, and Mary appeared the next night with St. Cecilia and St. Catherine of Alexandria on her side, early patrons of the order since that vision. And basically, she did bless that friar, the importance of wearing the habit. Um, 
always. Um, and so th- there's, and that's why we still bless with holy water. If you come to our Compline in the church, uh, we, so more stories of Mary to come, but an absence of a rosary vision there, there is, that doesn't appear in the earliest text. It's better to be honest than be, uh, dishonest. I don't know. So listen, we have a little bit of time. Any questions, provocations, uh, we got some time for that. So you can unmute if you'd like to do this and it will take a little time. Thanks for your time. I also have a whole rosary timeline I drew up to share with you. And if not, we'll just sign off. That'd be nice and we'll all get early bedtime. So... Thank you, Father Tim. Thank you, Anthony. What's on your mind? Oh, I, well, first of all, I, I didn't know. I, I came in late, and I missed the first part. I hope this was recorded or YouTube or whatever yeah, you do. Yeah, it's recorded, sure. Because it really, absolutely. I mean, there's what, what inspired me was so many stories that you told. I mean, I'm, I'm just, why haven't been, these been turned into paintings and things? This is incredible. I'll also add this, Anthony. It's it. That's a good question about artwork. You can find these in Dominican places. Like you can find a lot of the miracle stories. If you go to Dominican House of Studies, they're in stained glass in our okay. priory. But you'd have to know the stories and identify them. And go to specific Dominican places. Yeah. The other thing to be said is that on the internet, it is really hard to find detailed saint stories. Um, you can find this, the Libellus of Jordan of Saxony, on the Central Provinces website. If you go to the the Central okay. Province Dominicans in the U.S. They have blessed Jordan of Saxony. They have this this early thing. But I think saints across the board, unless you go and read a book, I, there's so much copy and pasting website to website. It's if you're preparing for a homily, you know, there's a lot of copy and pasting three paragraphs and done. So it's it's a uh, it's a surprising how shallow saint searches can be unless you really take time. Yeah. And this would be this would be all the saints we look at closely. Yeah. Um, any other comments too? Let's keep it open forum. Uh, thoughts, questions. Yes. At the um, is Chris Zirfaz, Father. Yes, I At see you, Chris. The Moorish uh, influence in Spain abated by Saint Dominic's time. I'm a little hazy on my history. No. So the, so so during so. Uh, Let's say the uh, what they call the Reconquista, you know, this whole sort of uh, Muslim and Jewish and Christian mixing in Spain and then the wars involved. Um, I would. Uh, so the key thing is that the fighting still going on under Innocent III. So when I talked about this crusade for the Albigensians or Cathars, those are synonyms, same word. Um, uh in the south of France, there's also there's also fighting going on in Spain itself. And I actually, my main question is this, uh, because really uh, Christianity doesn't reclaim all of Spain until 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and they were still in Cordoba. So it's interesting, too, how Dominic had this passion for the heresies uh, in the south of France, and then even further in the east, but there's no record of the home front. Like, that's a question of mine that I, I actually recently got a month ago and haven't looked into fully of why. Um, anyway, you get my 
Why wasn't he more involved in the Spanish and in the spiritual side of that? I'm not saying why didn't he grab a sword? Why didn't he go preaching? Um, is a good question. Yeah. Thanks, Father. Sure. Um, anybody else? Open forum. We have a little bit of time. Uh, I guess I was I was sort of wondering. Did the uh, well? Thanks for giving that talk, Father. Sure, Ryan. Sure. Um, when when they would come to these Cathar villages and whatnot, was there kind of like a blueprint that the order followed as to like how you even? Or would it just be kind of decentralized and, like, you just send a guy out there? And well, it wasn't so much that up. they had to draw up a blueprint because you have to think that a lot of the nobility and a lot of, like, your local governors and local – I mean, they were divided. So politics itself was divided. So these things so, – so, so the church was called in to try and also, like, talk this out. And so there was a lot of – as much church-state div, div, division, there was a lot of church-state cooperation in – in hosting these, um, these, uh, what would they call them? Disputes, public disputes. Yeah. Oh, and so for those disputes, yeah, were they, was that like entirely an elite thing in Latin? Like, in no, no, no. So that's actually it? really key. Uh, Jordan says, and other early documents say that, uh, so liturgy would have been in Latin, but no, those disputes were oftentimes, and they, he says clearly that they were all in the local dialect of, of Toulouse or the south of France, and so would be much of the preaching. I mean, all of this preaching is, is, in, is in the vernacular of people. It wouldn't be in Latin. Yeah. Their education and then liturgy would have been, but not the rest. Yeah, right thinking leads to right worship. How you think matters, and especially to the incarnation. I mean, one of the big principles too is that how how can there be this whole good evil divide if if God, you know, between spirit and flesh, if God who is spirit became flesh, and there's this whole sort of saying creation is good, even though so there's there's this whole emphasis on goodness and on uh, incarnation. That's a Dominican emphasis. It's why you know Fra Angelico. When you go up the steps of San Marcos in, in, in Florence, it's why he draws, you know, or, or not draws, it's a fresco, right at the top of the stairs. You're, you're hit with the color and even glitter almost. There's, it sparkles in a way because he had used beetle shells and insect stuff. and all. He, I mean, with the angel Gabriel announcing to Mary the Annunciation. And so that Annunciation, the Incarnation, same moment... Uh, becomes a big Dominican theme, uh, especially because of the problem which we first faced. That was the first answer. Yeah. Further questions, thoughts, open forum. Yeah. Or if not, we can go. It's almost 8.30. I know it's beyond uh, Chris Zerfoss's bedtimes. I'm just calling you. For fun. <laughs> I'm not trying to be mean, Chris. Just... Uh, St. Dominic would maybe make a joke like that. How how into jokes was he? We cannot tell. Um, well, thanks, everybody. We will be back next time with the early brothers. So we're going to talk about the earliest companions uh, next week. It's good to be with you always. If you want to share this, I'll post the audio um, tonight to the website. So uh, if you want other people, great. Thanks as always, and God bless. May God bless you through the intercession of St. Dominic, Our Lady, and all order of preachers, saints, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Happy Easter still, 50 days.
Don't forget. Thank you, Father. Okay. Take care. All right, everybody. Good night.